That's better. The reading this morning is from Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 to 15. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and some of the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your ancestors, Terah and his sons Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I played Egypt with what I did in its midst, and afterwards I brought you out. When I brought your ancestors out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your ancestors with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. When they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them, and your eyes saw what I did to Egypt. Afterwards you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you. And I handed them over to you, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then King Balak, son of Zippor of Moab, set out to fight against Israel. He sent and invited Balaam, son of Boar, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore he blessed you, so I rescued you out of his hand. When you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jergeshites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I handed them over to you. I sent the Hornets ahead of you, which drove out before you the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not laboured, and towns that you had not built, and you live in them. You eat the fruits of the vineyards and olive yards that you did not plant. Now therefore revere the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Now if you are unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose hand you are living, land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Amen. The second reading is carrying on from Joshua 24, verses 16 to 26. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It is the Lord our God who brought us and our ancestors up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight. He protected us along all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God, he is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. 
And the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and him we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and made statutes and ordinances for them at Sheshkem. Joshua wrote those words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak in the sanctuary of the Lord. Amen. May the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. At the end of September, Russia's President Vladimir Putin announced the illegal annexation of four Ukrainian regions by Moscow, laying claim to about 18% of Ukrainian land. He said that these territories would be, quotes, Russian forever. In response, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen uh, said that all territories illegally occupied by the Russian invaders are Ukrainian land and will always be part of this sovereign nation. Next month, a group of us here at Bloomsbury will be visiting the occupied territory of Palestine, where two people, two governments, both assert their eternal ownership over the same piece of land. Is the West Bank Israel? Is it Palestine? Or perhaps if a path to peace is to be found, can it be both? These arguments over the eternal sovereignty of land are an integral part of the current conflicts of both Ukraine and Palestine and also in so many other places around the world. Whereas historical reality, of course, is that land ownership shifts over the centuries. I was listening to a podcast about uh, Frederick the Great, a king in Prussia. And I thought to myself, where's Prussia again? Very few places on this planet can even begin to lay claim that they have belonged to the same people group since time immemorial. Well, there's nothing new under the sun, as the writer of Ecclesiastes put it. And our reading today from the book of Joshua, as we continue our autumn journey through the Hebrew Bible, uh, brings us to an encounter with a story that is predicated on some very specific claims about land ownership and God's will. From the perspective of the person who wrote the book of Joshua, the promised land is promised in its entirety to the people of Israel for all time. That is the perspective of the book of Joshua. Except, of course, as is so often the case where land is concerned, it's nowhere near that simple. And if you read the book of Joshua carefully, and I appreciate we were only reading the last chapter today, so you know, your homework could be to go and read the 23 preceding chapters if you feel like it. If you read through the book of Joshua, 
you find that even within that book itself, there is no single, clear, unambiguous vision for what the borders of the land of Israel are to be, or indeed how they are to be divided up within those borders. And this reflects the fact that this, is, this book of Joshua is another one of those examples of a book being written many, many centuries after the setting of the events that it is seeking to describe. So if you were to read through the chapters of Joshua, leading up to our reading from the final chapter today, you would find a number of different land ideologies in place, varying in their relatedness to, on the one hand, concrete historical realities, and on the other hand, a kind of idealistic and idealized vision of what Israel ought to be. So at the, at the idealistic end, we find the promised land neatly packaged into portions, carefully allocated to the 12 tribes of Israel. But then at the more historical realism end, we find stories of land still belonging to other people groups, that other tribes that are not part of the 12 tribes, including in chapter 13 of Joshua, the so-called people who remain, who it seems are the original inhabitants of the land before the conquest, still holding large territories, despite having apparently been entirely wiped out just a few years before. So back to the idealistic end again. We have horrific stories of total conquest, of a divinely ordained genocide, of all those living in the land of Canaan as, as the people of Israel crossed the Jordan to enter it to take their inheritance. But then back at the more realistic end again, we do get stories in Joshua and elsewhere of the Philistines, the Geshurites, the Arvim, the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Amorites, the Gebelites and the Lebanese, all living within the supposedly conquered and cleansed land that flows with milk and honey. Idealism doesn't always match historical reality particularly where land ownership is concerned. So back to the idealistic end of the spectrum again in the book of Joshua, we find the borders of Israel extend far to the west and far to the north, well beyond the River Jordan, all the way to the distant Euphrates. All of that land is claimed as Israel. But then back at the more historical realism end again, we find Israel being defined as nothing more than a series of partially occupied territories confined to the land east of the Jordan, sandwiched between the river and the Mediterranean Sea. It is not clear-cut. It is not as clear-cut as many today would like to think. And certainly the book of Joshua is, I suggest, no use at all as a guide to discerning God's divinely ordained historical borders of Israel for all time. Rather, what we have here in this book that we are reading from this morning is a story written nearly a millennia, many, many centuries after the time it is describing. And as is so often the case with these ancient historical narratives, Really, of course, it tells us far more about the people who wrote it 
than it does about the situation it is seeking to describe from 900 years before. The reality is that from a historical point of view, there is no evidence to support the conquest of Canaan as it is described in the book of Joshua. I mean, we all know the story, don't we? Joshua leads them over the Jordan and they, they, you know, they inhabit the land and wipe everybody out. There's just no historical evidence to suggest that happened. Far more likely, the so-called conquest was a slow process of migration, cohabitation and assimilation as incoming tribal groups intermarried and intermingled with people already living in the land, sometimes with fighting, sometimes without. And as we all know, from the contemporary experiences of immigration in this country, incoming groups will often retain their identity as distinct for two or three generations, but then the grandchildren or great-grandchildren of the initial immigrants become assimilated to the culture, and they make their contribution to it and they assimilate to it, and so a new culture emerges where those who were already in the land have learned things from those who've come in and those who have come in have learned things. The easy rhetoric of us and them breaks down in time. We no longer notice in England the divisions between Angles and Saxons, between Normans and Vikings. And one day we will set aside, or at least our descendants, will have set aside all the current suspicions and stigmas which we attach to cultures and identities in our time, and they will have their own issues which we haven't even dreamed of yet. And so it was in ancient Palestine. As the incoming people of Israel moved into occupied territory, But as we discovered last week, the sins of the parents are visited on the children, even to the third or fourth generation. And at the time the book of Joshua came to be written, there were still some ethnic and ideological battles being fought out over what it meant to be part of the people of Israel, over what it meant to be the heirs of the covenants of Noah and Abraham and Sinai that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. And so we find ourselves for a few minutes in the 7th century BCE, in the reign of King Josiah, who was king of Israel in that period, about 640 years before the time of Jesus. We're at that tricky point in Israel's history. So this is long after the conquest. This is the time when the book's written. We're, we're, we're long after the conquest, and we're in that tricky time in Israel's history between the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel at the hands of the Assyrians and the threat of incoming invasion to the southern kingdom by the Babylonians. And uh, the, the Israelites in the southern kingdom, the, the tribe of Judah, knew that they were in a sticky situation. The large empires of Assyria and Babylon were saber-rattling and invasion seemed an ever-present threat. And if you want to read about Josiah's reign, you can find it in the second book of Chronicles. So Josiah was crowned at the age of eight. He was a, a child king. And a decade later, when he was 18, he apparently went through something of a religious conversion, as 18-year-olds are wont to do. 
and he decided that he was going to seek the God of his father, David. The significant thing here, of course, is that David uh, was, of course, his ancestor, uh, not his father. And David was the much mythologized king of Israel from many centuries before. And the stories of King David spoke in idealized terms about a united Israel, of a time when Israel's territory expanded to its fullest extent. So for King Josiah, living in politically turbulent times, about 650 years before Jesus, suddenly announcing that he will seek the God of his father, David, this was something of a statement of intent, that he was setting his course on a nationalist agenda. He was kind of saying, David, the mythical king of old, in, ruled over all Israel, I'm going to seek the heart of my father, David, and I will be a king like David. I'm going to do a nationalist thing. He's going to mark his period in power by playing to people's nationalism and appealing to their sense of ethnic identity. And as populist nationalist rulers often discover, this can be a highly effective strategy. So riding a wave of renewed religious fervor, he set about destroying the altars of the Baal religion. These symbols of another culture, another people, he persecuted the prophets of Baal and restored the temple in Jerusalem. King Josiah, in fact, ordered the high priest Hilkiah to use tax money to renovate the temple. And somewhat conveniently, whilst doing so, Hilkiah discovered a scroll, apparently hidden for centuries in the temple treasury room. And when Josiah reads this scroll, which the cynic in me thinks he probably wrote, he, uh, Josiah discovers that it sets out a theological perspective that is perfectly in tune with his own nationalist agenda. Not only, it seems, does Josiah have history on his side, but now he is also claiming to have God on his side too, and he's got the religious texts to prove it. And what this scroll that uh, Hilkiah describes, um, finds describes is a, a way of looking at the world whereby when you're obedient to God, then God will reward you with prosperity and success. And when you're disobedient to God, you will experience failure and defeat. And how do you know what God wants? Well, of course, you ask the priest. And how does the priest know what God wants? Well, it's very firmly in the priest's interest to tell you that what God wants is exactly what the king wants. Can you see what Josiah is doing? He is constructing a highly effective mechanism for control, whereby history, theology, and the religious establishment are all in sync with his agenda to reform, restore, and rebuild Israel. The fact that he's harking back to a golden age that never really existed is irrelevant. It's the power of the myth that matters. And a good story can carry an awful lot of power. So, Josiah, king of Israel in this tricky time in its history between the Assyrian invasion and the coming Babylonian invasion, he calls an assembly of all the people, he calls the elders of all the people, and he declares that only the worship of the Lord will be allowed. All other forms of worship, all other gods are outlawed, 
The local sanctuaries, the high places are destroyed from Beersheba in the south to Bethel and the cities of Samaria in the north. Josiah had pagan priests executed. He even had the bones of dead priests at Bethel exhumed from their graves and burned on their own altars. And in a move not dissimilar to the exhumation of Oliver Cromwell's body after the restoration of the monarchy so that he could be hung, drawn and quartered after his own death, it, it's a powerful public symbol that the new regime is here to stay. Josiah also uh, reinstituted the Passover celebrations, taking this festival of God releasing Israel from enslavement and turning it into a symbol of national identity around which he required people to flock. All of this is essential, he says, because if there is any compromise, any compromise at all, then God will remove God's blessing and the people will be overcome by the threat of invasion from the neighboring nations. It's not quite North Korea, but it's not far from it. Josiah is constructing a highly centralized state with a powerful propaganda machine where non-compliance from his ideology is absolutely forbidden. And part of his program is the rewriting of the nation's religious texts, their historical documents, and their founding mythologies. It's all very Orwellian, as history itself becomes a tool to serve this king's agenda. And so we get the beginnings of what will become the book of Deuteronomy, a highly revisionist history of Israel, where the story is told in such a way to justify the conviction that obedience brings blessing and disobedience leads to destruction. And if you read through the book of Deuteronomy, you can see this happening again and again as Israel's fortunes rise and fall and are traced in line with their obedience or disobedience to the law of the Lord. And it's also in this period under Josiah's reign that our book of Joshua that we're looking at this morning comes into being. Telling its stories of Israel's ancient prehistory, describing their crossing the Jordan to occupy the promised land, their divinely ordained genocide against its pagan inhabitants. The book of Joshua itself is a, a highly idealized, politicized history, written to justify the ideology of Josiah's regime under which it was created. This is King Josiah's preferred view of history, because it all points to him and what he's trying to do in Israel in his time. The fact that at no point did any of what is described in this book happen as written, and that the political realities even of Josiah's own time don't reflect the ideology of the book he had written is not the point. This is not history. It's a cautionary tale for 7th century BC Israelites. It's a story written to scare people into compliance, to inspire obedience to Josiah's program of reform. And its message is clear. If you are obedient to the Lord, which means, of course, obedience to Josiah, then Israel will prosper once again. And so the final chapter of the book of Josiah, which we had as our reading today, is the culmination of this process, describing the renewal of the covenant between God and God's people in such a way as to appropriate it to King Josiah's ideology. This final chapter 
is set as a gathering of the people of Israel, much like Josiah gathered the people of Israel in his time. But in in the book of Joshua, the people of Israel are called together by the ancient warrior of old Joshua, whose exploits in subduing the native Canaanite population have become the stuff of legend. And the gathering is set in Shechem, a symbolic location as it was the place where the Lord had first appeared to Abraham and where Abraham had first built an altar to the Lord. If you're wanting to conduct a ritual of religious cleansing, this is the perfect setup. And so in the story that we had read to us just now by Linda, we find Joshua going through, kind of rehearsing all of God's mighty deeds as the basis for the request which is coming, that the people purify themselves and serve the Lord alone. And we get this interesting dialogue between Joshua and the people on this question of serving other gods. And Joshua's request is very clear. You could almost hear King Josiah saying it. The people should renew their commitment to the historic covenant established on that spot by Abraham. And the theology that requires this is very clear. If the people abandon the Lord and serve other gods, then the Lord will judge them and do them harm and consume them. This is not a very nice view of God, is it? This is a God who says, do what I'm telling you or I will judge you and harm you and consume you. This is the God that Josiah needs to enforce on Israel in the seventh century BC what he's trying to do, which is his nationalist revivalist project. And he writes it into the mouth of the ancient hero, Joshua. It's all very frightening, very manipulative, very Josiah. It's straight from the playbook of how to be a populist nationalist leader. I said our new, newly reformed young, young adults, young students group, students group, we've called ourselves reconstruction because we're interested in reconstructing faith after it's been deconstructed. I am aware what I have just done is a massive deconstruction project on the Deuteronomic history, the book of Josiah, and the way in which Israel of old presented its history with echoes down to the way in which that's heard in the contemporary world. Let's see if we can reconstruct something from that, shall we? Let's see if we can hear the whisper of the Spirit of God in this. What are we to make of this? How does this ancient story of revisionist history, genocide and invasion speak to our Christian faith as it takes shape in our world? Well, I want to offer a few thoughts to guide us. Firstly, I think we need to be very wary of any collusion between the church and the state. We need to be very wary of any collusion between church and state. History has shown that it is very easy for religious institutions, and now I'm going to stop pointing the finger at ancient Israel and I'm going to start pointing it at the Christian church. It is very easy for Christian churches to become part of the national propaganda within the society in which they exist. Take a look right now at the Russian Orthodox Church, 
who are entirely colluding and capitulating with Putin to provide theological and ideological justification for the invasion of Ukraine. Historically, we Baptists have always stayed at one remove from the established structures of the state. I'm not going to do a talk on Baptist history now, but if you don't know the story of why we stand at one remove from the state, I'd be delighted to go through that with you sometime. This is why we don't sing the national anthem in church. It's why we don't have a union flag flying in church. But we take this principled stand as Baptists, not because we are called to disengage from the politics of our world, but because we want to be free to offer our critique as we engage with the events of our day. I'm always amazed to see Baptist churches in other parts of the world flying the flag of their country. This has always seemed to me to be a bit of a betrayal of the basis on which we were founded. People should be free from the influence of the state in the affairs of their religion. But they should then be free from their religious convictions to engage the affairs of state, to critique where necessary, to bless where necessary. Friends, we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. Our king is Jesus and the Lord is our God. And we need to play, pay close attention to stories like the one we've been reading today as we reflect on the ready tendency of people of faith to pay allegiance to the state at the expense of their witness to the alternative kingdom of God for which we pray every time we recite the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. But secondly, as we continue to reflect on our reading from the end of the book of Joshua, I think this story calls us to consider before God our response to those places in our world where land is used as a tool of oppression. Our church visit to Palestine in a few weeks will take us into the heart of occupied territory as we spend time with the Palestinian Christian community who see their role as peacemakers in the middle of this conflict over land that is both ancient and contemporary. The situation we will be confronting in Palestine has its roots in Joshua chapter 24 and the ideology of Josiah. His ideology and the stories it created played a part in defining the foundational mythology of the promised land, which echoes down to the post-war project to recreate the land of Israel. And the conflict over the Holy Land continues as people occupy and people are displaced and suffering is experienced on all sides by the third and fourth generation and beyond. But of course it's not just Palestine and it's not just Ukraine. There are many places around our world where war, occupation and oppression are daily realities. And those of us who owe our allegiance to the Prince of Peace 
have a part to play in bringing peace to our world. And I wonder what our symbols of that will be. We're coming up to Remembrance Sunday in a few weeks. And we will observe Remembrance and the two-minute silence here at Bloomsbury. Many of us will wear red poppies. I would invite you to consider wearing, maybe alongside your red poppy, a white poppy. We have them, you can take them, they're in the foyer, they're free. They come from the Peace Pledge Union. They are symbols of our commitment to work for a world of peace. And whilst the red poppies call us to remember the sacrifices of those who have gone before and to honour our dead, the white poppies speak of our commitment to follow the Prince of Peace in working for a world of peace. And it all begins, I suggest, by us not turning away but rather by taking a conscious decision to keep aware of where people are suffering in our world and why. The founding minister of this church, the great William Brock, famously declared that the best tools for the preacher are the Times newspaper and the Bible. Many of you know that story well. And I think he's right. Although for me it's not so much the Times newspaper as a combination of the BBC, the Guardian and Al Jazeera, but you get the point. This twin commitment to deep engagement with scripture on the one hand and informed engagement with what's going on in our world on the other isn't just about preaching. It's about praying and whilst only a few of us get to preach, we all get to pray. So let us allow the media reports on our websites and podcasts and broadcasts and newspapers to drive us to our knees as we pray for those who suffer. And by praying, we create a world where their suffering is no longer invisible, where their plight is no longer ignored. Turning our faces towards those whom we could so easily pass by and ignore is the first step to the path of change as our lives and their lives become intertwined within the mystery of God. The book of Joshua is not an easy read. Its God is not a nice God. And it raises for us the fundamental question of which God it is that we will worship. Many Christians worship a nationalist God who fights for us against our enemies and promises us blessings if we obey his commands and does us harm if we don't. Today I invite you to choose to worship a different God, the one revealed in the person of Jesus, the one who calls us to pray and work for peace, to judge not lest we be judged, to love our neighbour as ourselves. As Joshua might have put it, as for me and my household, we will serve Jesus as Lord. God of love, mother and father of everything, 
Thank you for accepting us as we are and keeping us from the things we are not. You've blessed us with this community, so we wish to bless others with the love you have given us. We lift up our families without food, our elderly without heating, our unhoused and unrepresented marginalized groups, and we ask that you shine your warm, loving light on them. And may a blessing of empathy come upon our Western governments, help them turn from personal greed and white supremacy. Let us again become stewards of this beautiful land of abundance we call Earth. We wish to walk with you again in the cool of the afternoon. So we ask for your guidance in fighting climate change and restoring our lands from the hurt we have caused it. Loving God, thank you that we can come to you with our heavy thoughts and things we want to change. Thank you for bringing us our King Jesus Christ as an example of taking loving paths in life. Please gift us the strength to take these loving paths in the week ahead of us. In your holy name we pray. Amen. And a blessing to finish. And this is a slightly edited poem uh, by Mary Oliver. O oh, feed us this day, Holy Spirit, with the fragrance of the fields and the freshness of the oceans which you have made. And help us to hear and to hold in all dearness those exacting and wonderful words of our Lord Jesus Christ saying, follow me. Amen.